Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have a great time this afternoon together, you and me. I hope uh, you've got time to uh, open your Bible and get your notebook out. We're going to have some great opportunities to uh, grow in our faith and also to uh, learn some very concise way to share your faith. That's coming up in hour two. But to get hour one started, I thought I would uh, invite uh, back... Uh, Sheila Heen, and also Eric Bargerhoff, two of my all-time favorite guests. And Sheila and I had a chance to talk a little while ago about difficult conversations on how not to avoid conflict, because avoiding it creates all kinds of trouble, as you know. And Eric Bargerhoff is just fascinating to me. He's written a book, which is coming out in August, and it's a book about the most bizarre things in Scripture. You're just going to love this. So let me take 60 seconds and bring on Sheila. I'm Neil Stavum, manager of listener-supported Faith Radio. This effective ministry is reaching more and more people every day because of the financial investment of committed believers who want to see the name of Jesus lifted up through media. Our history goes back over 70 years, and we're grateful. But this is a new year with more ministry opportunities and more people looking for hope. Thanks to a growing outreach on AM and FM signals across the upper Midwest and in Hartford, and a digital platform impacting listeners from across the country and around the world, we're getting the gospel out to as many as we can in as many ways as we can. All of this has been made possible by the sacrificial giving of thousands of listeners committed to seeing the gospel spread through media. Now, if you're benefiting from the messages of hope and encouragement heard each day on Faith Radio, would you stand with us and invest in this ministry? Make your gift today at MyFaithRadio.com or by calling 877-933-2484. Thank you and God bless you. Welcome to the show. So glad it's Friday. Looking forward to the weekend. And I'm mostly excited that I get a chance to talk to Sheila Heen today. She's the founder of Triad Consulting Group. And she's a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School. And I'm always uh, looking forward to chatting with her, and I think it's in her contract or my contract that she's on often on afternoons with me. So, <laughs> Sheila, welcome Perfect. back. Thank you. I'm Thank delighted you. to be back. Well, I know I love what you teach when you teach about conflict resolution, difficult conversations, how to discuss what matters most. You and your writing partner, Doug Stone, have done some brilliant work, and I just think your approach is spectacular. Oh, well, thank you for that. And I'm guessing that you and me and a lot of our listeners have just come out of the holidays having had some difficult conversations or uh, avoided some yes. difficult conversations. One, one or the other. And yes. if, if you tried to keep peace, maybe you avoided conflict. Or if you stepped into the fray, maybe you're licking your wounds right now. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, because, Sheila, conflict is just, it's more than just a disagreement, isn't it? Well, it is often more than a disagreement, or it can feel like more than a disagreement because of how we handle it. And so it's not just the fact that we don't see eye to eye on this front, or we don't have the same preferences or predictions or, you know, 
schedule in mind for how we're going to go about this or that. It's also that when that happens, I feel badly treated by you, right? Mm-hmm. You, you dismiss my concerns. You, you know, make the plan despite knowing I'm not on board. You ignore me or you shout me down, um, go around behind my back, complain to other family members. Should we keep going? Oh, no. I <laughs> We're all getting sweaty. We're all getting a little sweaty here in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it, interestingly, the, the coping mechanisms that we have and we learn for dealing with conflict often actually become part of the conflict itself. Mm-hmm. And Sheila, is it reasonable to suggest that a conflict uh, could involve a threat? And that, I mean, And by threat, I mean, ooh, we could lose our relationship right now. Oh, this, for sure. This could turn into something that is uh, something nobody wants, but it could. It absolutely could, and I think that's often why we avoid bringing things up. Um, and it, it's partly because we think, well, I don't want to jeopardize the relationship. I don't want this relationship to feel tense. Or, you know, I don't want to lose the relationship. And what's maybe harder to see is that the relationship is already in trouble, mm-hmm. right? If I'm feeling frustrated or resentful or ignored or whatever it would be, um, it's already fraying along the seams. And, you know, I'm going to avoid spending too much time with you or whatever it might be. I'm going to develop workarounds for how to manage and cope in our relationship. And so the, the logic is, well, I don't want to jeopardize the relationship, but by not bringing it up, often we're jeopardizing the relationship. And instead, each time you do that frustrating thing that you constantly do, or that stupid thing that I keep <laughs> telling you you yes. should not do, yes. I just get more frustrated or resentful, and then I sort of tuck that away for future use. Yeah. So yeah. fester would be a word we could use right now. It is a word that we can use, and and often we think that we've let it go, right? Right. And then we get back together, and you do it again, and my reaction is not to what you did today. My reaction is what you did today along with last the last 14 times I saw you. Right. And so to you, it feels like I'm overreacting, but actually I am exactly correctly reacting. I will have you know. <laughs> <laughs> I figure, yep. It's just that it's to 14 iterations of this rather than just this last one. Right. Now, Sheila, you would be responding uh, based on your perceptions of the situation, and that may or may not have anything to do with the facts of the situation. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. I mean, we should just we should just acknowledge that my perception of the situation is the truth. <laughs> I saw that coming. Officially, officially. <laughs> yes. Um, but but you're right, and and interestingly, it feels to each of us like what we see is what's true, right? The facts. Mm-hmm. But in that's not the way that our brain stores information. Our brain stores information in the form of stories. And so I have a story about what happened. Oh. And that story includes, you know, what I'm right about and how you behaved badly and why then this is your fault or maybe why it's my fault um, because I should have seen it coming or known better or whatever, right? But blame is going to be part of that story. And then I have a theory about why you're acting this way mm-hmm. because, you know, I know how you are. And that whole bundle of things. That feels to me like facts, but it's actually 
a bunch of facts that then get woven into a tapestry of a story I tell. And in my tapestry, I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, that's not the tapestry that hangs in your house (laughs) about our relationship. And is that why, is that why we get defensive? Because it's not the truth. It's partly, it's, it's me protecting my place in the story. It is me protecting my place in the story, and and we're being genuine, meaning we're being what we would say truthful when we tell the story of what's going on or what the problem is, but it's the truth inside the world of our story, which is a a whole novel, right? Right. And the problem is that they're not reading from our novel. They're reading from their novel, and in their novel, I'm the one who's oversensitive (laughs) and the problem Mm -hmm. or, or, you know— hypercritical or whatever it would be, and they're the victim. And so the problem is that when we put those two stories together, we can't even figure out who's who, and we're each going to protest the way that we're cast by the other person. Okay, that's kind of a a sad reality, isn't it? It is sad reality, although maybe we we can cast it. Uh, a little bit more positively to say, at least we're all in it together. Yeah, good point. Right? I mean, I do this for a living full time. It's super easy for me to see when you come to me to vent about a situation in your family or, um, you know, with your colleagues, it's super easy as an outsider for me to see what's going on. But when it's my problem, it just seems different. It's like much more complicated. Mm -hmm. So from inside our own conflicts, it's really hard to see what we can see so easily in other people's conflicts. Yeah. It's just that's part of how we're built as humans, it seems. Okay, Sheila, let's go to that room in the house that's just underneath the basement. And (laughs) in that room is what I believe is at the core of all conflicts, which is selfishness. Mm. I simply want my way. No offense. Yeah, I want my way. Or, so for some people, what I'm what I'm pausing to ponder is that I actually think there are some people who feel like I my whole life is about serving others and making other people happy, whether that's in my family or at work or whatever. And so it's a slightly different riff on the selfishness that you're describing, okay. which is that we feel like I do everything for you guys and nobody cares about me or my needs or how I'm feeling. Nobody's taking care of me. I'm taking care of everybody else. And so we can call that selfishness, but I also just think it's a deeply human desire to be seen and acknowledged and accepted. Yeah. That's why you are the expert. And I just asked the questions. (laughs) That's so true. Well, you know, this isn't any easier really for me, which, which to me is part of what makes it rich, which is that I'm always trying to actually learn what I'm also trying to teach, uh, because it's a lifelong process. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about emotions, because emotions always come into play, and I think conflicts usually trip and trigger emotions faster than anything. Yeah, definitely faster than anything, and even faster than we're aware of. Um, and, you know, on the surface, it sounds like we're arguing about whatever the surface issue is. Um, maybe it's, you know, what time are we going to have dinner? Who's going to host next year? Or am I invited to the annual fill-in-the-blank? Or how come you left me out and decided this without me? Um, 
so that's the surface topic that we think this conflict is about. But pretty quickly, there's that second conflict, which is how we each feel treated by the other in how we're handling that over time. Mm-hmm. You know, when I had a really interesting conversation with a guy named Bruce Feiler, he wrote Walking the Bible. Okay. Um, and he then wrote a book a couple books later about happy families. So he came to my house for dinner and um, wanted What'd to you serve? learn. Oh, say it again. What, what? I served? Yeah. Um, I served lots of examples for his book, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> because my two sons immediately got into an argument about a grudge that one had been holding against the other for years, uh-huh. which, of course, shows up in his book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So so he has twin daughters, and so we were talking about how do you handle conflict in families and what can you learn from conflict resolution ex quote unquote experts about this, right? And then my family is on full display as having conflicts. Um, but but one of the things that I think I've learned from others, other experts, is that in families it's not bad to have conflict. The important thing is to model how do you work through it? How do you disagree with someone or feel hurt or angry with someone? and then actually listen to each other, apologize for what you should apologize for, but not not for things that you shouldn't be apologizing for, just to make things peaceful again, um, because that's not genuine. Ooh, that and sounds, then find a way together. That sounds like a fine line. Let me take a little break. Sheila Heen is my guest. She's founder of Triad Consulting Group. We're going to be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. So glad to be talking to Sheila Heen again, one of my all-time faves. She's uh, uh, a consultor, a consulting expert, and she's a lecturer on law at Harvard, and she teaches negotiations and uh, conflict resolution. And we were just, before the break, Sheila, uh, we were chatting about um, some of the things you were discussing with your friend at dinner. Yeah. And modeling it, walking it out, that's the hard thing to do when to say I'm sorry and then when you don't have to say you're sorry. That that's a fine line. It is a fine line and, and I don't I don't mean to discourage people at all from apologizing, except that I guess what I notice sometimes that can actually be destructive is that often one member of the family becomes the peacemaker and the way that they make peace is for apologizing and taking full responsibility for everyone mm. or for anything which actually maybe has nothing to do with them. And they're letting other people off the hook from actually owning and apologizing for or understanding why what they did hurt others. And so it's a coping strategy, actually, that is pretty common and, and maybe is particularly common in Christian communities because we so value peace. But it's not genuine peace if we're simply quickly sweeping it under the rug. Um, rather than actually talking about, hey, what happened and what was your reaction to that and why did that hurt your feelings or why were you upset? Maybe I didn't understand that. Let's actually talk it through so that we can share the responsibility for what happened and think about how we want to handle it differently the next time. Mm -hmm. And if you short-circuit that conversation, 
you're basically guaranteeing that we're going to we're going to go through this dance again. We're going to see the same play over and over and it's going to yeah. have the same ending every time. Sheila, how do you have one of those groundbreaking conversations with a loved one if you've never really done it before? You've just stayed in this this conflict sort of um place for years and years mm. and now you have to sit down and have one of these conversations and they've never done it. It's like asking someone to walk into a room and just start speaking Russian. Yes, indeed. Indeed. You know, it's part of the challenge is just the awkwardness. Like we have a little groove of how we interact Mm -hmm. and has developed over years, sometimes decades. And stepping outside that groove in and of itself feels awkward. Even if I'm almost guaranteed to get a positive reaction, which of course isn't necessarily the case, but let's imagine, I think I will get a positive reaction, but it can feel awkward just to do something different and unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I think one of the things to lead with is the bundle of feelings you're feeling about it. And when I say bundle, I mean, um, Usually in those sort of complicated long-term relationships, we have a bunch of conflicting feelings, right? We feel enormous appreciation for a bunch of things that have meant a lot to us over the years. We've felt frustrated sometimes or quickly dismissed or wondering whether they really loved us or really respected our choices or really could accept us and that that was hurtful. At the same time, it's meant a lot to us that they have kept in touch or whatever it would be, right? So I've got a bunch of feelings that feel like, well, these are conflicting feelings. So they must cancel each other out. But in fact, we hold all of them at the same time. And sharing that whole range actually makes that conversation easier, including this feels really awkward to talk about. And at the same time, it's really important to me. We call it the and stance. You're tempted to say, but it's important to me. Just say and, because both are true at the same time. And it feels really important for us to have this conversation right now. Because there are some things I've never said to you that feel important to me. Sounds like like full-on confrontation. That sounds scary. It's confrontation if it has an accusatory nature and if you're not willing to also listen. So confrontation is essentially, I have a message. I'm going to come in. I'm going to deliver it. And you've got a target on your back, and then I am going to escape as soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> the car is running out front. Okay. Yeah. If if it's instead, hey, I want to talk about something that's really important to me. I want to share what it is and why it's important. And I'm curious about your reactions and how you see it. Then that's not so much confrontation as much as an invitation. Mm-hmm. And you can't guarantee the other person will take your invitation, but simply putting it out there and and reserve judgment, because they may not take it right away, but they might sit in on it a little bit and then circle back mm-hmm. later. Sheila, the, you might just be so surprised. Yeah. The author, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, said the reason that Christians aren't hospitable as we should be is because we hide from conflict or the opportunity for awkwardness. Ooh. That's, good, That's a great it? observation. Yeah, it, it is, is good. good. What do you find yourself doing um, in those moments? I hide from conflict because I'm, I'm okay with awkwardness because that's kind of my life. <laughs> <laughs> awkwardness is your comfort yes, yes. zone? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, of course. Hence my job. Hence this conversation. You know, it's all, there's awkwardness everywhere. 
But yeah. it's, it's conflict, which, you know, if there's the threat of loss or the threat of something that uh, I can't undo or if I don't say it well, I fear that, uh-oh, I didn't say that right. Let me get that back. And then all of a sudden that ship is gone. You know, it's it's scary. It is scary. And you're also pointing out something that I definitely sometimes feel, which is there's a sort of perfectionism or sense of self-competence. I don't Mm -hmm. mean confidence, which is also true, but competence, meaning I have to, if I'm going to raise it, I have to do it perfectly. I have to do it well. Yes. Or else if it doesn't go well, it's my fault because I handled it poorly or stupidly or whatever. Made a bad judgment call. And then I feel totally responsible. Hey, sure didn't think through that very well, did you? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Nice job. Right. By the way, you know, be someone who's written a book on difficult conversations and see how that feels. Oh, oh yeah, that's even difficult worse. Difficult conversations. Yeah. You know, nice work. So just to end on a happy note, conflicts are, are going to be a great opportunity for growth, aren't they? They're a great opportunity for growth. They're inevitable in relationships, and they really – there's a, a way in which how we handle them is the relationship. It's not just that we have conflicts in our relationships. How we handle them actually drives. It's where the rubber meets the road, and that's that's what drives whether the – relationship strengthens and thrives um, or whether it starts to fray. Mm -hmm. Is the 10th anniversary of difficult conversations, when did that happen? About 10 years ago now. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's a fantastic book and people should read it. They should have it on their nightstand and they should have it in the library. I'm not saying buy more than one copy, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also you mentioned the 10th anniversary. On the 10th anniversary, we actually put out a new edition, the 2010 edition, and we added questions people ask to the back. Questions Uh like, well, what if they really are crazy? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, some of some of your listeners may want to turn straight to that question. (laughs) Yeah. And thanks for the feedback. Um, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. That's another great book. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know I'm a fan. Five years. Sheila, you know I'm a fan. You know that. Oh, well, thank you very much. And and as we turn into this new year, thinking about what are the conversations or relationships where I really want to change something and want to, where do I want to invest a little bit of time and effort to make them just a little bit better is definitely one of the things that I'm thinking about. And I imagine you are too. Uh, indeed, I am. It's always on, always on my mind. So do come back and, and talk again sometime soon, maybe this winter again. For sure. All right. Thank you, Sheila. Have a great day. You too. Talk yep. to you soon. Yep. Sheila Heen's been my guest. Uh, she's founder of Triad Consulting Group and a lecturer at law at Harvard. And uh, her books are available online. Thanks for the feedback and difficult conversations, how to discuss what matters most. We'll take a short break and we'll be back with lots more.
I'm awfully glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, Professor of Bible and Theology, and Director of the Honors Program, something I've never been in. And he comes to us all the way from sunny Florida. Eric, welcome back to the show. Bill, it's always a great privilege to be with you, and I love the, that uh, we get a chance to really talk about God's Word together. Yeah, I love it. Now, you're cranking out another book. I know it's not going to come out till uh, sometime in 2020, but it's got quite a provocative title, if I may say so. Yeah, it's called Why Is That in the Bible? And it basically is going to cover all kinds of, of strange things that we find in Scripture, things that are perplexing, things that are odd, funny, controversial, weird, disgusting, a lot of those type of things that, that people just often have questions about. And um, it's supposed to be just kind of a cross-section of about 40 different stories or verses mm-hmm. that are that are very intriguing, um, that I think are going to be really helpful for me and people to kind of read through and entertaining at that. You know, every time you come across something that is just so out there, you read it and you go, hmm, I'm just going to keep moving. I'm just going <laughs> yeah. to keep moving. Yeah, there's some things that are definitely not part of our culture that we have, we, <laughs> right. we have to step into the world of the Bible to kind of understand why this is really even um, necessary you know, for us to understand why did God choose to do this? Why is this detail in the Scripture? Um, why is this doesn't even relate to me? How does it, how do I make some connection with this? So the kind of stories I'm going to be talking about are are things like the Nephilim, Balaam and his talking donkey, and Herod being eaten by worms in Acts 12. Of course, we've got Ananias and Sapphira and Solomon's polygamy. Uh, in Numbers 11, we've got quail coming out of people's nostrils. You know, <laughs> so, this is why I, mean, I read just this a, and move on. I know it's just really strange things that the scriptures mention, and we're like, "What?" You know, even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah has this acted out prophecy where he goes and buys a pair of linen underwear and wears it for a long periods of time, but he's not allowed to wash it, and it's supposed to be a, an illustration of of. Israel's spirituality before God it becomes nasty and, and, and disgusting, and that really is a display of the spiritual condition of God's people at the time. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about and, and, and speaks of that sounds really strange to us on the surface, but once you get into the world of the Bible, it really does make sense. Yeah, well, I'm really curious, Eric, because <clears throat> I love your writing, I love your work, and the way you think, so I would love to here and and let the listeners be teased by one of the or two <laughs> okay. or three of the great stories that are coming out of the book. Well, sure. Well, uh, you know, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Elisha, and um, he's the protege to Elijah. And Elijah was kind of the romantic prophet. I mean, the the Jews looked at him, and they they had a, a real love affair, you might say, with Elijah in their historical past, just because he did all these miracles. Yeah. And things, and so Elijah was a a hero. And of course, we know that that's the prophet who shows up with Jesus and and Moses in the Sermon on the Mount as well. But his protege was Elisha. Are we going to and Second Elisha, Kings already? Yeah, Second uh, Kings too oh, is fantastic. where we're going to go. And and, <laughs> and 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 Elisha is is uh, the protege of Elijah, and he gets a double portion of his power. Yes, because he, he saw him as he went up, was as he saw Elijah go up to heaven, and 
and of course he he receives the cloak, he tests the cloak, he strikes the the brook, uh, the the Jordan, and there, and he crosses over that, and he so he's got this amazing anointing by God to continue on with the prophetic ministry, and and so in one of these stories uh, with Elijah, we have an immediate first test of his power, and actually. Um, what I would call an immediate first threat, too. And there's this wonderful story that sends panic through any parent who hears it. And it's from Second Kings 2, where Elisha is going up to Bethel. And as he's walking along the path, it says in, in chapter 2, verses 23 or 24, that some small boys came out of the city and jeered at Elisha, saying, Go up, Baldy, go up, Baldy, right? <laughs> A bald head or whatever you might call him. Um, He turns around, he looks at them, he curses them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears come out of the wood and mauls 42 of the children, okay? That taught him a lesson. And and, and it's like, what is that? What is going on here? Uh, How is this really in keeping with what God would do to what, kids? You know, so what we have to do is we got to look at this a little bit deeper. And as we go into this, we'll see that, the actual Hebrew word that we have translated into English as small boys is actually a little bit misleading because the the word could actually go for males from any age 12 to age 30. So that kind of changes things a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Small small boys is not like eight or nine-year-old kids that are just doing little sing-song things like making fun of this bald-headed prophet. That's not what's going on here. Uh, so perhaps the better word to translate it would be young lads. And it would be, at this point, kind of a, a gang of bandits that could be in their late teens or early 20s. They had no respect for this prophet. In fact, Elijah was going up to Bethel, which had been a place that was known for Baal worship. And so a, a lot of this threat that he could be experiencing from these young young males could actually be a threat to his very life. Uh, so his his safety is really um, a, an issue here. Hmm. And the idea of go up bald head, go up bald head, is not necessarily go up to Bethel, but go up to heaven just like your previous predecessor Elijah did. So they basically are shouting these words of contempt that he's he should be disappearing just like Elijah did. So it really changes the whole environment here. They wanted nothing to do with this prophet of Israel or the God that he represented. They're like hostile young men posing an imminent threat to now the lead prophet of Israel, and they want him out of their sight. And that kind of changes how we view the whole situation, because Elisha sees it, he sees a threat, he knows the threat, he calls down the curse, and then God's instant judgment comes. Now, notice in the text, it doesn't say that Elisha uh, called the she-bears to come out and maul the kids. He just simply called a curse, and God was the one that brought forth the she-bears that came out and mauled the 42 of these guys. So um, that whole context and background is very important to get insight into what's really going on in this text. So, Eric, it doesn't really uh, change the way we understand this. It helps us understand it correctly for the first time. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I hope so. I mean, this is the goal in, in my in books that I write, and in this particular book that's coming out in August, is I, I really want to just give a fuller context uh, un, so that people can understand certain, certain things that on the surface just don't make a lot of sense or at least seem strange that, that that would happen or that God would do such a thing. And one of the things that I've done in this book is I, I do talk about the idea of God's judgment. And I think that this is something, Bill, that that we don't fully understand because we read some of these passages in the Old Testament where God commanded you know the Israelites to go in and to wipe out uh, the Canaanites in the Promised Land and to you know just basically everything from men, women, children, animals, you know, put them to the band is what it was called. And they were actually instruments of God's judgment. Now, God had given the Canaanites plenty of opportunity to repent. They refused to repent. They were wholesale corrupt all through and through. And so God basically said, enough. And he uses Israel, his people, to go in and to basically be his instrument of judgment. And I think that that's very difficult for us to understand because I think today we have failed to understand the measure of who God is as a holy God and that he has a right to execute judgment in his own way, in his own time, however he chooses. And I think we've lost a little bit of that understanding of God's holiness. And so where, therefore, when we see his judgment, his righteous and holy judgment come about in the pages of Scripture, we're shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what makes us uncomfortable is because we just don't have that view of God, that big view of God as the holy and awesome God that Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah 6 when he saw him seated on the throne. And um, so I think that this is something we have to recover as Christians in the church. We need to understand who God is and his holiness and have a reverential fear for him. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he is our brother. Yes, he is our savior. He is kind, compassionate, gracious, and loving. But at the same time, we have to see how much our sin is an affront to the holiness of God. So, Eric, I can honestly say I've never heard a preacher or a Bible teacher talk on this passage, and Rebecca's shaking her head the same. So I'm wondering uh, how something like this has gotten slipped through the cracks for so many decades in my life. The one about Elisha and the bear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's just because we, we have to really dive in in a verse-by-verse approach to Scripture, and we have to see the fullest context of what was going on in Israel with regard to their worship of Baal mm-hmm. and how thoroughly pagan and corrupt Israel had become. And, and, and basically, Elijah and Elisha were almost like the last straws. God was sending them the last straws in there to help them. Of course, they were also discipling and training other prophets at the time. But, I mean, things were, were so bad in Israel at this point that this kind of threat to those who were trying to lead Israel back to revival was something that could not be afforded. And so God did actually call down justice to these young guys. And, of course, it says small boys in your text, in your scripture. But, again, I, I repeat, the Hebrew could be young lads, mm-hmm. and that could be, that could be anyone from 12 to 30 years old. 
Um, and so we we see these as as a threat. This is like a a small uh, a group or a gang of 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 guys who are very hostile to one of the most important people in Israel's revival history, Elisha. And um, and so God was going to protect his people. That's one of the lessons we get out of this, is that God has a way of protecting his people. He knows and he sees what we don't always see, and he'll find a way to protect us. Which is going to lead me into another story. If you want to take a break, I don't know, but if well, you I, want to load, I, I jump do. onto another story, I, I'm happy to. I do want to take a break in about a minute. But I I wish there would have been in the text in verse 24 when it says, He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. I would have Mm. loved if I would have been able to then see what the words were that he used, what the curse sounded like. Yeah. That would have been interesting. And we don't have that. We don't have that. Not not recorded for us. But again, the curse is not specific. Um, It just says, He says, He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Of course, this is not inappropriate because the Bible talks about blessings and curses and that um, this is basically calling down judgment from God upon those who are threatening him. And then God was the one that actually enacted the female bears to come out of the woods to take care of that imminent threat. So, yeah, and so there he goes on to Mount Carmel and return to Samaria, as it says in the text. So basically threat eliminated um, by God. So God has a way of protecting his people and protecting his servants in ways that, that are, that's amazing to us. Mm-hmm. And then by not having the curse in the text <clears throat> probably prevents us from ever using it ourselves. Probably, yeah. <laughs> we would be tempted to go down paths we shouldn't. Yeah, a biblical curse. All right, let me take a little break. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. He's written uh, several books, Love That Rescues, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, and a new book coming out uh, next year called Why Is That in the Bible? We'll take a short break and be right back. show. I'm so glad to be speaking to my friend, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He is in Trinity, Florida, which always makes me a little jealous this time of year. He's written several books. The one we're chatting about today is called Why Is That in the Bible? And every time I look at that title, Eric, I'm never sure what word to emphasize, but it works on many different levels. Yeah, we actually put the that in all caps to help us there. Why is that in the Bible? Because it's just like we can imagine ourselves pointing to a text and saying, why is that? Right. So, but uh, as we were went to, before we went to a break, we were talking about um, Elisha, the life of Elisha and how he was threatened by a group of bandits or a youth group, so to speak, of a hostile youth group yeah. that was after him because they were, they were uh, worshipers of Baal. And of course, he represents God, Yahweh, the the God of Israel, and they were threatening him, and he called down a curse on them. And we talked a little bit about how God has a way of protecting his people in ways that marvel us. And there's another story of Elisha that's that's to that very point, and it's later in chapter 6. And, of course, we sing um, the song in church, the God of angel armies. And uh, I don't know if your church sings that, but uh, we have 
we've sang that song. I think uh, Chris Tomlin may have sang that or, or whatever. You'll hear it on the radio. But we talk about the God of angel armies. Well, this is really one of the best stories, in my opinion, of the Old Testament, where uh, Elisha is is really helping the people of Israel uh, in the war that they're ongoingly have with the nations around them. And it just happens to be at this time in Second Kings 6 that they're fighting the Syrians, or also known as the Arameans. Um, so the Arameans had a, a, a habit of sending raiding parties into Israel, just kind of like, almost like terrorists, actually. And they would go and they would raid uh, various camps of Israel. And what would happen is that Elisha would warn the king of Israel where uh, the king of Aram was going to have a, a, a raiding party. And so he would warn them. So every time that the king of Aram would make a plan, um, Elisha would warn the king of Israel about the plan and tell him about it so that the Israelites could avoid being ambushed by their enemy. So basically the king of Aram finds out that every single time they make this plan, it's thwarted and he's mad. He's furious. You know, the, the Aramean king is just furious and he calls all of his servants in, together and he says, all right, tell me which one of you is the mole. <laughs> who, right. is leak, who is leaking our plans to the king of Israel? Yes. Who signed on the FISA warrant? Yeah, she's like, what? Who's 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 the leak? Who's the mole among us? Who's the traitor who's telling the king of Israel what's going on? And, of course, one of his servants says, no one is, God. No one is my lord. He says, it's Elisha the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel words that you speak even in your own bedroom. That ought to, <laughs> that ought to, that ought to shake you up and scare you a little bit oh, yeah. right there. But um, so basically, I mean— What's going on is that Elisha is getting the word from God about what the enemy king is planning, and he's delivering prophetically this word from God to the king of Israel so they can avoid being um, ransacked and, and ambushed. And so the king of Aram is fuming, like he's, he thinks he's got this traitor in his own camp, but but actually it's the Elisha prophet. And so what he decides to do is, is even more hilarious to me. So the king says in verse 13, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. And, and so they say, well, Elisha is in Dothan, and that's not in Alabama. So he sends horses, chariots, and a massive army at night to surround Elisha. And I think what's so hilarious about this is they're going to try to ambush and capture Elisha. But what in the world is this king thinking? Why is this Aramean king think that this new secret plan is one that Elisha is finally going to be caught by surprise about, right? <laughs> so it's like, why, why is it after, after all Elisha has already revealed yeah. regarding this king's plans to, to the Israelite king, why is it now that this Aramean enemy king thinks that he's going to have a new secret plan that's going to catch Elisha off guard? So, well, they in the, in the, in the meantime, they go ahead and enact their plan. They surround, um, they surround the place where Elisha and his servant are staying in the middle of the night. They wake up in the morning. The servant of, of, of Elisha goes out and sees that they are surrounded by the, the Aramean army, and he panics. My master, what are we going to do? 
and and Elisha's sitting there, and he's like cool as a cucumber, right? I mean, he's he's just he's he's not panicked at all, and and his servants like what what's going on here? The servants in a panic, and Elisha finally says, "Don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them." And of course, this servant is like completely confused. What do you mean there's more of us than them? I mean, there's a whole army out there. And then Elisha prays and asks the Lord to open his servant's eyes so he can see. And so the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he sees all around the mountains chariots of fire that are surrounding Elisha. It was covered with horses and chariots of fire. And basically we have the angel armies of the Lord that are there protecting Elisha and his servant from ambush by these enemy um, soldiers. So the long story short, you know, God um, answers Elisha's prayers. He strikes the nation with blindness. He leads them out of the area where they are and leads them right into uh, Samaria where the Israelites basically have them surrounded and, um, you know, they're not allowed to kill them. Elisha doesn't allow them to kill them. And um, basically they throw a feast for them, send them off. And then from then on, the enemy raiders don't come into Israel's land again. I mean, they basically have been scorched. They, they, they've been had, and they realize that they were at the mercy of the Israelites. And so they stopped their planning. They kind of, in other words, stopped going after uh, Elisha. And this story is wonderful because it teaches us some really great things. Number one is this. God is always sovereignly in control of everything that pertains to our lives, and we have to trust him no matter what. Uh, secondly, prayer. Prayer is the thing that, that Elisha did that enabled the servant of Elisha to see things from God's perspective. And I think prayer is the thing that we need to make sure we are committed to as believers so that we can get a better view of God's perspective about the situations that we find ourselves in. Because it opens our eyes to see where God is at work and so that we can see more of the spiritual side of things. You know, C.S. Lewis said, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. And and that is definitely true. It gets us on board with God's agenda to see things more from his perspective. And so this story, why is that in the Bible? This is there to show us that there is a world outside of the world that we see. This, there's another dimension to life that we don't always see where God is always, always at work. I am so impressed uh, how cool and confident uh, Elisha is because this is a, a characteristic that we could all use a little bit more of nowadays. He has, he, he, you know why I think he has that, though? I think it's because he knows who his God is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the more that we as Christians know who our God is, by studying God's Word, we get a picture of who he is, the more confidence we have in dealing with everything that we deal with in life. No matter what the doctors say is the diagnosis for our sickness, no matter uh, how much money we do or don't have coming in each month, no matter who uh, betrays us in a relationship, no matter what our struggles and challenges of life are, if we understand that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God loves me, and he's got a plan for my life, 
then we can have a, a, a reassurance and a peace and a confidence that is a supernatural kind of peace. Again, Paul says it's the peace that passes all understanding. Mm-hmm. And what I love about you and your teaching and this book that's coming out next year is just hearing you talk about it, I feel like I've learned so much more than if I just would have picked it up and read it myself. But again, I'm just reminded how powerful teaching is and what a great teacher you are. Well, thank you, Brother Bill. It's just yeah. an honor. I, I, I just you know, I, I just read and study and I enjoy it and I learn from others. I love to listen to other insights from other people. But it's important for us to be surrounded by uh, quality teachers that are going to train us up in the Lord. And I mean, that's the job of a pastor, right? To equip God's people for the ministry. And we do that when we equip them with the eternal, inerrant Word of God. That's indeed so true. And I appreciate the giftedness that you share with others because God has given you that gift and you use it well for His glory and His kingdom. Well, amen to that. Yeah. Give me the glory. Thank yeah. you, Beryl. Yeah. And just uh, wanting to. Um, thank you for coming on to the show, and I, I promise I want to be on the on the top 100 people that you uh, allowed to interview when the book finally hits the, the market. Uh, it be my privilege. I enjoy you and your show and your listeners as well. Um, blessings to you, my friend. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest. The book called Why Is That in the Bible? All right, we'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.